We'll hear argument first this morning in 04-1528, Randall versus Sorrell and the consolidated cases. Mr. Bob. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As this Court made clear recently in Republican Party of Minnesota versus White, since political candidates are the ones who take office, it is imperative that they be allowed freely to express themselves on matters of current public importance. As a result, this Court has never allowed the government to prohibit candidates from communicating relevant information to voters during an election. Vermont, however, has adopted low expenditure and contribution limits for the opposite purpose, reducing overall candidate campaign spending, and these limits would have that effect. This is fundamentally incompatible with any reasonable interpretation of the First Amendment and is not justified by any truly compelling governmental interest. As a result, they are unconstitutional. Now, Vermont's expenditure limits are an unprecedented direct restraint on candidate speech. Once these low expenditure limits are exhausted, a candidate may not drive to the Village Green to address a rally, may not return the phone call from a reporter at the local newspaper, and may not call a neighbor to urge her to get out to vote. This Court has never allowed the government to prohibit candidates from communicating this sort of relevant information during a campaign. Further, this Court has long held that more speech is better than less speech. As long as contribution limits are available to address any realistic concerns about corruption, the public will benefit from candidates being allowed to spend all that they can lawfully raise in their campaign. Now, the record is clear in this case that the expenditure limits will deprive candidates of substantial resources. The District Court erroneously looked at average spending over the last three elections and found that in all but one category, that is, Senate candidates running in single-member districts, that the average spending for all candidates in those campaigns were below the limits set uh, by the expenditure limits in Vermont. However, in Buckley, the last uh, case for the, uh, where this Court uh, considered candidate expenditure limits, uh, the Court looked at the number of races affected, not the average spending in all races. Uh, and in Buckley, uh, the Court looked at the expenditure, expenditures in U.S. Senate races and found that in previous election that 26 percent uh, were over the uh, mandatory expenditure limits uh, considered in Buckley, and in the House, 3 percent of the races had spending uh, greater than the, these limits. Mr. And Bob, uh, would you clarify a procedural point? As I understand it, on the expenditure issue, there is no final decision that has gone back to the district court for further proceedings. Well, there were — that is correct, that and there is they, a remand. The district court might, may well find that nothing passes constitutional muster in the end. Well, they could uh, potentially, yes. Uh, however, the, the Second Circuit did, did make uh, decisions of law. Uh, they found that these two interests that the state is alleging, that is, in preventing corruption and in conserving incumbent time, were together a compelling governmental interest, and we, we allege that they are not and that on this record this Court can determine that they are not, they are not together a compelling governmental uh, interest. Are you arguing now, then, that there may be no limits on expenditures? Well, the, this Court has now considered, uh, including this case, a dozen uh, times in which the government has sought to limit expenditures, either of candidates or PACs or political parties, and despite the work of the most brilliant lawyers in the United States, they have not uh, come up with any compelling governmental interest that this Court has accepted. And we believe that this record demonstrates that these claimed interests either are not compelling or uh, are not proven. Do you, when, when you make that point that on this record the, the claimed interests are not compelling and not proven, uh, would you have us leave the door open uh, for a greater degree of proof? For example, take the, the, the problem of candidate time. The lower the uh, donation limits are, uh, the, the more donations there have got to be, uh, and, and there's, there's uh, plenty of comment, particularly in some of the amicus briefs, on the amount of time that political candidates generally spend scrounging around for money. 
If we decided the case your way, would the door be left open uh, for a more impressive and compelling record on this issue? Well, we, we are uh, asserting that that is not a compelling interest in and of itself, and this Court should re- reject it. I, I just don't think But you also say on this record. Yes. And, and in addition, well, the, the, the point about it not being a compelling interest, I think, is an analytical point that doesn't have to be, that doesn't rest uh, on this, strictly on this record. So I, I take it your point then on the combined corruption uh, 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 a competition for money problem is that there isn't any record that would support it. If it were a compelling interest, there's no record here that right. But a you're saying the, the, this combination cannot be a compelling interest as a matter of law, consistent with the First Amendment. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I don't see how it is a compelling governmental interest to limit com- uh, 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 challengers to only fundraise to the extent that an incumbent finds comfortable or convenient. Yeah. And, well, uh, or at least where, where the limitation, uh, you make a big point of this in your brief, as, as, I under, as I recall, at least where the reason the candidate would have to spend so much time is the very small contribution limit established by the same statute. It's, it, it's rather like the, uh, the, the murderer asking for mercy because he's an orphan. Uh, uh, having killed his parents. Uh, it is a self-justifying uh, statute by imposing the lowest contribution limits in, in the nation, uh, adjusted for uh, uh, inflation for 1974 dollars when the $1,000 limit was approved. Uh, this is a contribution limit of $50 well, for well, an election. Well, get back to Justice Souter's question. Uh, could you answer it this way? Let's, let's assume that some members of the court simply accepted the proposition that money buys access. Uh, and and I, I don't think maybe we can take judicial notice of that, but I, 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 I think that's a common-sense conclusion that we can reach. And you tend to fight this in your brief to say that, that this doesn't happen. Uh, I tend to doubt that. I tend to think money does buy access. Uh, what... If, if, if we or I were to conclude that, what would follow? Well, I, I think it's not a matter of just access. It, it has to be a matter of privileged access, as this Court found All right. Found Let's in say it's time. privileged access. Well, the, if, it, if it's privileged I mean, access. Isn't the answer that, the, that, the, that this is up to the voters? The voters can see what's going on and throw the legislator out if they choose. Indeed, and in fact, the, uh, the, there are other less restrictive ways of, of dealing with this. For, for instance, Vermont uh, prohibits uh, contributions from lobbyists during the session. Uh, other legislatures have imposed uh, the, a prohibition on incumbents from uh, uh, raising any money during uh, the time the legislative session uh, legislature is in session. So th- there are ways of dealing with the question of access that are not the blunderbust approach here. It, it, it is true that all the polls say that there's public disaffection and cynicism. Does that translate into uh, action <coughs> to defeat incumbents who take particularly large sums of money? Is there, is, is there statistical evidence to show that? I, I'm not aware of that, uh, but certainly uh, the press and opponents often, you know, point to examples where they believe that uh, th- their challenger is under too much of an influence of a particular entity, and the voters, in, in, you know, un- in certain circumstances, take that into account in their voting. Uh, and furthermore, it, it is true that there is a general cynicism uh, about uh, politicians and government that has existed since uh, uh, the first colonists came to our country and continues today. In fact, our governmental system is established on the proposition that we need to limit uh, the, the government and we need to have checks and balances because we don't want free reign uh, by politicians because we are concerned about their exercise of power. But if in, this is enough. Mr. Bob, this, uh, in rec- following up on Justice Ginsburg's inquiry, is it your view that there is no set of facts no matter how scandalous and so forth and so on, Watergate and all the rest of it, could ever justify an expenditure limit? It, that is not our position. We're, we, uh, well, if that's the case, then why, why would it be inappropriate to have further hearings in this case to see whether there, 
they could be justified? Because there have been legal uh, findings by the Second Circuit that we believe are erroneous. The the first, as I mentioned previously, is that that we do not believe that the uh, preserving incumbent's time through expenditure limits can ever be a compelling governmental interest to limit what challengers can spend, raise and spend in their own election. I mean, this uh, interest, the the expenditure limits don't apply just to incumbents who, uh, if there is a concern about I'm I'm just curious to know what sort of of evidence could ever support an an expenditure limit in your view, if if any. I have a a, a very difficult time justifying expenditure limits. I know there's a debate on this Court on whether or not there are per se uh, situations under the First Amendment. Uh, If there was ever a candidate for a per se uh, First Amendment ban on a law, surely it would be this type of case. In other words, uh, we are talking about speech that is at the core of the First Amendment. And secondly, we are talking about candidate speech Candidates are the ones that go into office. They are the ones that are going to be exercising governmental power. These low expenditure and contribution limits will have the effect of making candidates a bit player in their own election so that the voters — Council, with respect to the contribution limits, what what makes this case different from uh, the shrink pack case from a few years ago? Well, several things. Uh, first is there was act- actually a paucity of evidence in the shrink pack case. Uh, there was only an allegation of one pack that wanted to give one contribution to one candidate. And this court uh, said that, you know, you didn't meet, need a lot of evidence to combat such a weak, uh, uh, weak claim. Uh, so uh, secondly is the novelty and plausibility of a adjusted for uh, per election and $1974 of a $50 contribution limit, that that would actually give rise to realistic uh, uh, concern about actual and perceived corruption. So, again, in shrink Do you think think it's the dollar amounts that are involved? Well, one of the decisions that the Court has to make under your jurisprudence is that, that contribution limits can only eliminate large contributions that give rise to this realistic perception or actuality of corruption. So it is, whether it's large or not, and giving rise to that concern because of the size, that is an integral part of the shrink analysis. It, it was pointed out in, in one of the briefs, and I, I didn't go back and check it myself, but I'd like your comment. It was pointed out in one of the briefs that the limits in Vermont uh, were substantially close to or even even higher than the, than the limits in the Missouri scheme out of which the shrink litigation grew. Do you know whether that is correct? Well, it depends on uh, how you, you compute it. Uh, the, uh, always, you know. It is. Yeah. The, uh, uh, well, certainly what, the, what the, the evidence was in shrink was it was a $1,075 limit. And again, adjusted for inflation was about $375 adjusted for inflation to compare it to the Buckley uh, limits. And because of the paucity of evidence and the fact that it wasn't really novel to say that a $1,000 limit could give rise to corruption because but this court in Buckley approved it. Mr. Bob, and I think that's what Justice Souter was asking about. There was yeah. the $1,000, but I think it went down as low as $250. Yeah, t- take the whole schedule in yeah. Missouri. Well, the, uh, the, con- the contribution limits that this court considered was the $1,000, 75 There was a court that subsequently considered the rest and upheld. Yes, there was. The Eighth Circuit did so, and the, uh, the lowest limit there was $275 per election, uh, which would be $500 per, for the, uh, the entire uh, election cycle. And the uh, and but really that that was on a uh, a record that this court found to be frankly uh, in- inadequate to r- to raise any serious questions about the uh, whether the amounts con- uh, concerned uh, gave rise to a realistic threat of corruption and the record here demonstrates that that the o- that the only time really uh, there is a uh, actuality or perception of corruption in Vermont is when they, when we're talking about amounts in excess of a thousand dollars. That was the prior limit. And we didn't we didn't send it back uh, so that uh, more of a record could be made. No, no. And uh, you know we had a ten-day trial. Uh, we had uh, numerous witnesses here. 
the uh, shrink had been uh, decided. Uh, I mean, there was uh, — everything was before uh, the court to consider the, the matter. And uh, so, uh, you know, they had their chance at, at proof. And, uh, and in the numerous witnesses, they made their best case. Uh, they could not identify one single uh, politician in Vermont that was — that anyone would, would claim was corrupted in any way by a contribution — by contributions under uh, $1,000. They could not name one single incumbent me, uh, politician in Vermont that neglected any specific duty that he or she had. Well, but, you know, <laughs> you expect them to name names? I mean, here — Well, if uh, — Really, that, that, that's, that's a lot to ask. Well, well they, they at least have to give, re, you know, re, realistic uh, circumstances. They gave a few circumstances. Well, suppose three legislators had been uh, corrupted, venal, criminal corruption, uh, actually taking no wink, wink, nod, nod, specific agreement to vote for money. Uh, uh, so what? Does that change your case? Well, the, the, the responsibility that shrink imposes is to, to demonstrate both actual and perceived suppose, corruption. Suppose at that States. had been demonstrated in, in a particular state. Does that mean, in your view, that a state can have uh, strict contribution limits henceforth? If it's just an, anecdotal, no. It no, has no to it's be true. It's, 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 it's done. There have been criminal convictions. Well, the, uh, if it's isolated examples that are unconnected to any perception of corruption at that level, then it would not be adequate on it, on its, on its, by itself. Now, of course, in shrink, the court cited to both actual and perceived uh, 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 evidence of corruption at the level that the uh, you are considering that limit. Well, well, if if you can see if you concede and and and, and you tend at least to uh, back away from the proposition that the case I put would be um, an inadequate ground or an adequate ground for legislative limits, then I suppose you can say the state has the power to prevent this from happening to begin with. Well, the, this court has never approved uh, restrictions on fundamental First Amendment values ba- based purely upon speculation or uh, concern about uh, something that's happening in some other place. Uh, in other words, these are real limits on people in Vermont. And it seems to me that to uh, approve the lowest contribution limits in the nation and these very low expenditure limits, the state would have to demonstrate that Vermont's the most corrupt uh, state in the nation, and they're far from it. In fact, the only the most corruptible. Well, nor, nor corruptible. The, 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 the evidence is quite clear. Even in the few examples that they cite to, like the uh, tobacco industry passing out $40 checks after a, a vote defeating a, a, a bill. Uh, of course, that's still legal uh, under this, uh, this act. But, uh, you know, even point out that they, the, the person who talked about that example made it clear that he didn't believe anybody was, uh, was influenced by post, uh, post contributions after a vote, uh, regarding a matter that's not even prohibited by this, uh, by this act. So it, it was, it was a lot of testimony about how truly clean Vermont is, not the most corrupt, uh, where, uh, people, uh, Politicians would be tempted at these uh, quite low limits to, uh, you know, sell their honor and, and, and personal, um, uh, you know, and, and, their own, and affect their own, per, you know, personal character and reputation. Uh, Mr. Bob, toward the end of your brief, uh, you, you, you make the argument that if we accepted the state's position in this case, we implicitly would have accepted the position uh, that totally totally publicly funded elections would be constitutional. And and I I realize your your concern there was with expenditure uh, limits, obviously, not contribution limits. Uh, You didn't come out and say it, but I I assume your position is that that would be unconstitutional per se. A a totally publicly funded scheme would be unconstitutional per Uh, se. The key would be if it's mandated, uh, a voluntary. If it was mandated, uh, yes, it would be unconstitutional. And and its unconstitutionality would would rest on the limitation on expenditure, in effect? Yes. uh, Yes. Uh, Well, there would be a prohibition in that case. 
if I understand oh, yeah, you, yeah. on, uh, on uh, contributions. And there would be also a, uh, a mandatory expenditure limit because you could only spend what the government gave you. So uh, that would have all those features. Now, if it was, of course, voluntary, it would solve the, the two problems that, that the state talks about. Uh, because if you have a voluntary public funding system, and this is, again, why remand is, is inappropriate, you, you don't need to go back and, and determine whether or not the legislature considered providing adequate public funds. I mean, it's whether that uh, alternative exists. But on, on your view, if, if there were a, a mandatory publicly funded scheme and the, the limits on expenditure were very high, it was a very generous scheme, they gave them lots of money, it would still be unconstitutional because there would be, I take it on your view, because there would be an elimination of any way to participate by contributing. There would be an absolute prohibition, and this Court in, in Beaumont re- reserved that question uh, of whether or not an absolute prohibition. And, and then in McConnell, you struck down the absolute prohibition on minors uh, uh, contributing to campaigns. So, yes, there would be a p- absolute prohibition on any way for any uh, individual to associate with a campaign through a contribution. Uh, well, it would also prevent the candidate himself from expending his entire fortune, if he wishes, in informing people of why he should be elected. Yes, uh, that is That's true. And in the record below, pl- Plaintiff Donald uh, Brunelli uh, said that he was prepared to spend uh, considerable sums uh, in, in support of his state senate election, uh, which uh, and considerable sums above the expenditure limits that were before uh, that were adopted by Vermont. So the the question uh, is an independent which question. raises no possibility of corruption. Well, nor nor on uh, fundraising uh, using up your time because uh, all a wealthy person has to do is write a check. And, and of course in Vermont they even have an exception. Uh, for uh, not only just the wealthy wealthy candidate, but the wealthy family. Uh, so, uh, you know. I don't know what you mean. They have an exception for the wealthy family. Yes. Uh, to the third degree of consanguinity, uh, people uh, who are related to you to that degree uh, are not subject to the contribution limit. So, uh, you know, it's hard to justify uh, uh, Vermont's scheme if you're concerned about uh, the influence of wealthy because they're giving the wealthy carte blanche uh, to fund their own campaigns even under these limits. So a wealthy person who want, runs for governor, he has no fundraising costs. So uh, and, and he can uh, get contributions from others that are related by blood but not by marriage, interestingly, uh, to, to him. So the uh, public funding or, or uh, the expenditures by, by the wealthy neither give rise to uh, and both solve, either d- don't give rise or solve the problems that they claim. So there's, there's, uh, you don't need a remand to consider that, that question, and that is one of the questions that the Second Circuit has asked uh, that, that the matter be uh, remanded for. Now, in addition, the... Uh, uh, Expenditure and contribution limits here are not going to allow even effective campaigns. Uh, we have considerable evidence uh, in the record that to run an effective campaign for governor uh, in Vermont, it takes six hundred to eight hundred thousand uh, dollars uh, for the Mr. Senate. Scott, may I ask you? You keep the way you're discussing this case. One would think that the trial court found there was an evidentiary insufficiency, but I thought, at least on the contributions part. The trial court found that the evidence sufficed to justify those limits. They did, but erroneously, and I th- we believe that you have a responsibility to do an independent examination of the record. Uh, for instance, there was a finding by the district court that these uh, amounts were, quote, suspiciously large. Now, if you look at the record and you look at the six individuals... Excuse me, what, what amounts were suspiciously large? The contribution limits, uh, the amounts over the contribution limits. Can you, can you point to the place in the district court opinion that you're referring to? I'm sorry, I do not have that in front of me. That uh, the district court found that the amounts prohibited under the contribution limits by Vermont were, quote, suspiciously large. And then they cited six 
different witnesses. We have reviewed each, in our reply, each one of those witnesses. And it is simply not true that any of them said that it was suspiciously large. That is, that it, there was any relationship between uh, uh, contributions uh, between the old limits of $1,000 per election and these new much, much lower limits, that there was any, uh, uh, any witness uh, related the contributions of that size to any uh, threat of corruption. In fact, in the examples that are given, uh, uh, they disclaim that uh, there was any, uh, that anybody was bought or influenced in any way by the uh, uh, contributions that were made. Now, the, uh, in terms of an effective campaign, uh, of course, under shrink, uh, if a expenditure, if a contribution limit amounts to an expenditure limit, and the court commented on this, this court commented on this in, in Citizens Against Rent Control versus Berkeley, uh, if a contribution limit acts as an expenditure limit, uh, then it can, it will also be struck down if a candidates cannot mount effective campaigns. And here we have demonstrated in the record what an effective campaign amounts to, and the amounts, even for the House District of 2000, would be simply used up by one brochure, 100-yard signs, and one postcard mailing. All of these have been valued in the record, and that would amount to 1500 to $2,000, almost the entire amount allowed it, not allowing even one mailing to all voters uh, in, uh, in that House District. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Counsel. General Sorrell. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, and may it please the Court. Uh, Justice Kennedy, you raised the issue of whether money uh, buys access. It clearly does. Our governor admitted that in a State of the State address. But we also had testimony at trial from a former uh, statewide office holder that money, of course, buys access, but on the bad days, it buys influence. And we had the President of the Senate. Counsel, you you say in your brief, I'm reading from page 13, that the record convincingly shows that the ties among donor groups and elected officials often determine the positions officials take. Can you give me an example of an official who took a position because of the ties to donor groups? The, uh, there was testimony that the President of the Senate uh, said to another senator who was testifying at trial, we've lost the drug money, I'm not willing to lose the food manufacturer money, so I'm not going to sign this bill. That same President of the Senate testified in the legislative hearing, I, he admitted that he makes decisions in performing his legislative duties because of that whole lot of money that he had collected in the year before. So your position is that that official's official positions were determined by the donor groups, as you say in your brief? Influenced and — Well, your brief says determined. And did you did — Had you an influence, and we would suggest an undue influence in some cases. So it should say influenced rather than determined. We didn't have — Anyone, as uh, Justice Scalia asked, who stood up and admitted to uh, having taken bribes, we did have the senator who is the chair of the Senate Finance Committee who said that she's not a favor of tax credits, but she had a donor to her campaign who had given $500 in one campaign cycle and $1,000 in another cycle, and she allowed a tax credit to go through her taxing committee, even though substantively uh, she didn't uh, like tax credits. How how many prosecutions for political corruption have you brought? We have not uh, had any of legislators or statewide officers that I am aware of. Do you think that political corruption in Vermont is a serious problem? It is a serious problem. Over 70 percent of Vermonters, uh, at, there was testimony at trial from an expert that over 70 percent of Vermonters believe that corporate interests and wealthy individuals have an undue influence on politics in the state. And uh, I think 73 percent uh, believe that the average citizen Would you describe your state as a clean state politically or as a corrupt one? We have a real problem in Vermont. We haven't had a governor go to prison. We haven't had legislators tearfully apologizing for having taken bribes, facing an indictment the next day. 
But we have got a problem in Vermont and over 65 hearings before our legislature and then through a 10-day trial, we established that, as the trial court said, the threat of corruption in Vermont is far from illusory. To the extent that Vermont legislators can be bought off by $51? There's nothing in the record. Very sad. But that's the limit you've placed on, on contributions. Uh, I no. I mean, you know, if, if, if you accept more than $51, you're, you're, you're likely to have your vote determined by that. No, I, we don't suggest we don't suggest that. What, what, then we, why, why the $50 limit? It certainly isn't based on the corruption. I don't know what $50 limit you are talking you know, He's about. thinking in 19 — he sometimes thinks in the past. He's thinking <laughs> — he's, he's translated into 1974 or 72 real dollars. Oh, it's, it's the, 200. It's the, Same it's, question for 200 it's and the math. The reality is that these contribution limits that we had — we had examples under the old contribution limits. Even Petitioner Randall admitted that in Vermont, a $1,000 contribution. If you receive a $1,000 contribution in Vermont, and this is one of the petitioners, then Vermonters think that you've been bought. And that's and the they, reality. But presumably the, they act accordingly at the polls. If they think someone's been bought, I assume they don't reelect the person. The Buckley Court thought that disclosure obligations and contribution limits alone would be — would suffice to address corruption and the But I have the same question Justice Scalia had. I mean, the question is, you, you, you have limits here of $100 per election. It's 200 per cycle. For a House race, yes. 300 for the Senate, 400 for a candidate for statewide office, including the governor. That's $200 for an election for governor. You throw in contributions in kind. You say that the political parties themselves cannot give more than that $200 uh, for an election for the governor. If we translated those into 1974 dollars, they're just the numbers Justice Scalia mentioned. And I would like to know uh, why are they, why does that not give incumbents a tremendous advantage? That if you have the incumbent plus a newspaper, it's hopeless, that there's no way of spending money as a challenger. In other words, why aren't these limits far too low? Incumbents had a much more of an advantage in the pre-Act 64 world. They could raise more money and spend more money uh, than — It's not going to help to say incumbents had a bigger advantage before. That is, the question is what we're interested in is at least what I've written that I'm interested in, is at what point do these become so low that they really, as a significant matter, shut off the possibility of a challenge? And from that point of view, your numbers, which do not tell me the expenditures in a competitive district, and your numbers, which do not explain all the problems that Judge Winter had with these things, uh, do not help. That's why I'm asking you the question. Vermont, has the, Vermont has the second lowest uh, gubernatorial spending in the country. The, in the record, it shows that in the largest urban area in the state, in the Burlington area, you can buy three 30-second TV ads in prime time on Tier 1 cable for $45. I'm not talking about the expenditure. I'm talking about the contribution limits. It, I and my friends have the following thought. We don't know who the candidates for state rep are, but we want a Republican slate or we want a Democratic slate. So we get all our $5 together, give them to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in Vermont, and lo and behold, that party cannot give more than uh, $100 in an election to a state rep, etc. Now, to the, to the ear, that sounds as if a challenger or a slate of challengers or a party that wants to challenge is going to have a really tough time. So I want you to explain it. The extensive record below shows that with these contribution limits, attacking the corruption and the appearance of corruption issue, that candidates can amass the resources necessary to run effective campaigns at all levels. It shows that on average. It doesn't show that in the competitive races, which is where the, where, where the shoe pinches. The, the, the reality is that 
that in virtually all classes of races other than the single-member Senate races, that average spending was below these expenditure limits. And these include contested cases with primaries without uh, — That's just what I said. Your figures show that the average spending is below. But that's not what's significant. What's significant is what Justice Breyer posed, where, where there is a contested race and, and some new candidate wants to unseat a — uh, somebody who's been in there for years. That's, that's where the shoe pinches. And Justice Scalia, under our law, the challenger can spend more than the incumbent because the incumbent has a, a lid not of 85 percent or 90 percent of the expenditure limit, depending on whether it's a legislative race or a, uh, or a statewide race. But the, the issue here is you're going to have some, some outliers, but we have core constitutional interests in trying to enhance the integrity of our campaigns. We have this problem. The legislature reached a balance here. It looked at what, how much you would need to run effective campaigns. It set contributions. But in, in, in any campaign, or in, in many campaigns, the, the issues take shape during the process of the campaign, and they're historical events, uh, national events that suddenly occur that people want to comment on. And I, I, I just don't see that there's any capacity for adjusting so that the public can know how candidates are facing issues that are beginning to emerge uh, that the public has a vital interest in. And my uh, understanding was that a quarter-page ad in the Burlington newspaper was, uh, I think, $1,400. Now, it's, it's gratifying to know that Vermonters are spurging on cable television, but it, it — it, 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 it seems to me that this is a highly res, 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 restrictive uh, r- rule insofar as having the campaign be able to address the issues that the voters say that they've become interested in. We have the second lowest, smallest legislative districts in the country, 4,000 citizens per single-member legislative district. Sure, that's what it costs to uh, take out an ad in the free press. But there's nothing in the record to show that House candidates, legislative candidates, take out those size ads in the, in the Burlington free press. The record is otherwise. The record reflects that it's primarily door-to-door uh, uh, campaigning for legislative races. If you're taking out an ad, it's, in, it's a flyer in one of the, the weekly papers. Uh, Petitioner Donald Brunel admitted that he ran a competitive race for the House spending $1,000. That included yard signs, a mailing to his constituents, and a flyer advertisements in the, in the newspaper. Did he have a primary? Uh, I don't know whether he pr- had a that, primary. That's another feature of, of, of this uh, scheme that I find quite puzzling. You get the same expenditure limit uh, for the election cycle, whether you go through a primary or not. What an advantage that is for the incumbent. The, uh, there was testimony in the record that those who have a primary might actually get a bump uh, over others who are not challenged. But as the district court pointed out, in Vermont, what makes Vermont different is that our primary is late. It's the second Tuesday in September, and so it's less than eight weeks from the general election. It's not like having a primary uh, in the spring. And as the legislature during those 65 hearings considered uh, the campaigning, they considered all kinds of campaigns, including contested primaries and not. And again, uh, average spending in these campaigns was, with minor exception of the single-member Senate districts, of which there are three, uh, that average spending was below these expenditure limits. So in the average campaign, you could actually spend more uh, than, uh, than on average is being spent. And the issue when you've got competing constitutional interests is whether we address our problems of corruption, appearance of corruption. We try to free up candidates and public officials' time from fundraising. We try to create competitive elections and bring more citizens into the process at voting, grassroots campaigning, and standing for election. We want more Ms. people to run. Ms. Mr. Sorrell, would, would you go back to the, uh, your comment on, on average expenditures? Do we know from the record uh, how many of the <clears throat> how many of the contests on the basis of which the average was calculated uh, were contests in which there was a a, a contested primary? Uh, we don't have that 
evidence in the record. What we have is that we, the, the experts looked at total spending, which would include primary spending and general election spending, and our figures uh, went from that. And our expert, uh, by the way, uh, considered all races, even those for which campaign finance reports were not filed, meaning that the candidate hadn't raised or expended more than $500, and assumed $500 in spending in each one of those uh, each one of those races. So our average spending figures actually might be a little higher than, than reality. Was there any testimony or evidence on the other side of the point that Judge Winter made? That is, you have someone running in a primary and then faces an incumbent in the general election, but there's nothing left in the till because it was a hard-fought primary that the advantage to the incumbent in that situation was of large concern to at least some of the judges on the Second Circuit. And that might be an issue that on remand, in this case, is being remanded on a couple of issues that aren't even before this Court. Not on the contributions, is it? Uh, No, it's not, not on the contributions. But it is going back to the Court on issues of transfers of money from national parties to uh, state parties and on whether related or coordinated expenditures uh, are indeed uh, allowed to be an expenditure. So it's, the case is going back to the trial court on those bases anyway. But it's not going back on the expenditure limit. I, I mean, the problem, I mean, we, I was getting at it, Justice Ginsburg is getting at it, Judge Winter uh, got at it, and the, the, the problem is, is the uh, the, the, the total limitation uh, on an election cycle, including the primary, when the primary uh, involves a challenge uh, so that the challenger uh, has an uphill fight, presumably, to start with in the primary. And if he's going to maintain an effective uphill fight in the primary and he's lucky enough to win, he's going to get to the general election and he's going to be broke. That's, I mean, that's, that's the problem that we're concerned with. That has not been a problem that was reflected in the record, either before the legislature uh, or at trial. And this is uh, a facial challenge to the law, and, you know, that situation of a primary candidate who, uh, for whatever reason, felt that he or she needed to uh, expend up to close to the expenditure limit it wouldn't be very prudent, uh, but... Uh, that could be an issue. But, you know, we do not control independent expenditures uh, under our law, and we certainly don't limit volunteer services. There's a tremendous amount of campaigning uh, that can go on between a primary and a general election, even with a limited amount of funds available. If the burden uh, is on the candidate to establish that uh, that somebody's uh, expenditure is independent and shouldn't be counted against his uh, uh, expenditure limit. No, there is a presumption under our law. A presumption, which means but, the burden to go forward and show the opposite is on him, right? Oh, but it could be on the on, on the on the party, uh, because and, it, and the money that he spends in overcoming that presumption is no, charged against his expenditure. No, Justice Scalia, right? the Secretary of State uh, reached uh, issued a, an opinion that we our office agrees with that expenditures on attorneys for you know ballot access questions and the like are not. Uh, in furtherance of the candidacy and would not apply against the, the other candidate. side says the opposite. I'll, I'll, uh, but the, the Secretary of State's public uh, opinion that we, the enforcement authority, agree with is uh, to the contrary. Well, I may, suppose may I the Vermont to... courts could construe it more narrowly at some later point. I, I would hate to rest the opinion on that. The, the under Vermont law, a presumption such, such as this is not a burden, creates no burden of persuasion, nor does it change the burden of proof. Well, I, you know, I looked at your, the, the references in your brief for that proposition, and I did not see them borne out. You referred to a, a footnote in the district court opinion, uh, which in turn refers to the remark of a sponsor of the amendment that, that resulted in the presumption being in the law. Uh, and the only thing that was attributed to the sponsor was that the presumption pe- should be regarded as rebuttable. The, the <coughs> footnote in the statement did not indicate that the presumption was a disappearing presumption once the other side went forward with any evidence. Uh, so I don't see 
based on your your uh, citations that the presumption goes away simply by uh, by one party going forward with evidence well if you if some entity that has the burden of proof to show in fact that it was a related or coordinated expenditure has the party on the one hand uh, and the candidate on the other saying we did not coordinate here i didn't ask for it i didn't approve it and then that, where is the evidence the, the 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 point is what if we don't have that simple situation let, let me ask you this maybe we can short circuit this uh, i mean do, do you represent uh, as a as a statement of vermont law that this court should decide the case on the assumption that the presumption is a disappearing presumption once Evidence is offered against it. Yes. Okay. Well, credible evidence. Yes. Yes. Is, it, is an affidavit from the candidate enough credible evidence in your view? Yes. And, and thereafter, all the all the Kennedy ha- has to say is in an affidavit, no, it wasn't coordinated, and then the burden is on the state to show that it was. If the state is the party that's trying to prove that it was, in fact, a coordinated expenditure under the law, it would typically be uh, opposing candidate who okay. tries to the opposing candidate or the state. Okay. Yes. So, Justice Brandeis said that there's room under our system for a courageous state to experiment. Just can I ask a technical question? Yes. Just, uh, is is it the case or not the case that if I contribute my car to drive the candidate for governor? say, between Burlington and Montpelier, and I buy the gas, does that count against the limit? It, volunt- yes or no? I'm a volunteer, and I buy gas and drive them back. And you, yeah, you drive. Then the answer is no, no. He drives. Well, but it's your car. You're there. No. No, I'm not there. Lend him the car. <laughs> okay, I got the idea. Okay. He does. If I do, it's not. What about I have a coffee? Coffee. I, I, I wanted to get the line. I see it. Uh, uh, a coffee. I, I want to have coffee and donuts, three donuts, because... Uh, and uh, coffee uh, for people to come in, is that counted or not? So, as long as it's under $100. Oh, no, it's 200 Coffee and donuts are expensive. <laughs> okay. We, we, we don't, our coffee's not that expensive, but... Uh, donuts and coffee, in other words, it counts as long as it's over 100 Yes. Uh, under 100 under 100 No, over 100 counts. counts. Under 100 it does not. My Thank time is you. expired. Thank you. Who's right? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to return to a question that Justice Kennedy asked earlier about why, if there are examples of corruption uh, that the public becomes aware of, why the public doesn't respond simply by voting the individual out of office. And I think it's important to point out that some of the most serious examples of corruption on this record or of the uh, undue influence achieved by uh, monetary concerns were not examples that ever became public except in the course of the trial of this case when we had witnesses come forward to testify about some of their own personal experiences in the legislature. By the very nature of the problem of candidates becoming unduly beholden to the interests that can provide the greatest sums for their campaigns, those kinds of uh, incidents are not going to typically be a matter of discussion. Oh, but I, I thought that the point was that the public mistrusts their representatives because of large donations. And I thought the point being made was, well, if that's the case and the public sees that this fellow has gotten a $10,000 donation, the public will say this, this fellow is in that, is in that uh, corporation's or that person's pocket. But the difficulty- and I won't vote for that person. You, you don't have to show that uh, — out of the mouth of the candidate that, that, that he voted for the bill because he got $10,000. The mere fact that it's on the public record that he got $10,000, if, if what you say is correct, that, that people are worried about the, the, the corruptive effect of such donations, people should logically vote against that candidate who accepts so much money. Two points on that, Your Honor. First of all, the problem of holding candidates accountable uh, in that manner is, is greatly exacerbated when you have a system of unlimited spending in which all of the candidates involved feel compelled to go out and raise as much as they can in order to forestall the possibility of being outspent. Then, when a voter says, well, why are you doing this, the candidate has a ready-made answer. If I don't do this, you know, maybe I'd rather not, but if I don't, I'm going to be bested in the fundraising arms race. And voters 
reluctantly have come to I thought understand that that's — When you look at the, the record, uh, Vermont would be the last place that you'd be worried about it. The political culture, as we just heard, is that it's easy to go door to door, and that's what the Vermonters expect. And it doesn't take an arms race to get on your feet and go door to door. And it, it seems to me that there's a real dilemma on the respondent side of the case between justifying low limits by saying you don't really need money to run effectively and at the same time suggesting that there's a serious problem of too much money. Well, but Which we, is it? Well, what we do have is candidates, even though it is possible to run effective campaigns in Vermont for lower amounts, candidates nevertheless go out and raise often much more than what they need. Here's an example from the record. Uh, we had uh, Senate candidate Vincent Aluzzi. Uh, in 1998, he raised 39000 almost $40,000 for his Senate campaign. His challenger uh, was able to raise almost nothing. Uh, he only spent $30,000 worth of that. Candidates don't need $39,000 or $30,000 to run an effective Senate campaign, but an incumbent that builds a war chest has the ability to deter serious challenges. On, on your question, the question — oh, sorry. Yeah. Could candidates run effective campaigns if there were no — with these contribution limits, if there were no expenditure limits? Oh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, the, we believe the record strongly shows that. Uh, for example, there was a, a, a mayoral election in Burlington run under these limits uh, during uh, the time that I the mean, if, was if there were no expenditure limits, if candidates could spend as much as they want, could they raise enough money with these contribution limits? Yes. An effective campaign. Yes, Your Honor, because this Burlington mayor's race, as an example, was one in which there was no limit on, on spending. And both candidates were able to raise amounts uh, either similar to what they had raised in the past or at least amounts that met the campaign budget uh, that they had sought to, to, to follow. Um, I think in looking at the level of the contribution limits, it's important, again, to understand the scale of politics in Vermont. If we want to compare them to Missouri, uh, a $2,000 limit uh, for a gubernatorial race in Missouri was approved by this court, and, and in Missouri you had an election in 2000 where uh, each candidate was spending eight or nine million dollars in a gubernatorial race. I mean that compares very directly if you look at the same ratio for Vermont. Pardon me. Wasn't it state auditor? N not the eight or nine million dollars. No, I know, but didn't we have in front of us? A limit, which we I wrote was rather border, uh, that involved a state auditor campaign. In Missouri? I thought so, in uh, Shrink, Missouri. It, it may have been state auditor, but it also the — Which is not quite the same political volatility, perhaps. But no, but the — I have a different question I'd like to ask you, which you ha I haven't heard addressed yet. On the expenditure limits, there is a case, Buckley versus Phileo, and the Court held in that case — that expenditure limits are not constitutional. Now, whether I agree with that or don't agree with that, am I not bound by that? And insofar as you try to distinguish it, you've read what Judge Winter said about your efforts to distinguish it. And uh, therefore, I'd like to hear why you think I'm not bound by past precedent in an important matter uh, with which I may or may not have agreed at the time. Yes, Your Honor, we believe expenditure limits can be upheld without overruling Buckley versus Vallejo, and that's for several reasons. First, Buckley uh, created a rule of exacting scrutiny that applies to expenditure limits. That is not a rule of automatic invalidation. And very importantly, uh, when Buckley declared that the interest in deterring corruption and its appearance was not adequate to support the expenditure limits, that was on a record in which neither spending nor uh, contributions had been subject to meaningful limits prior to the time of FICA and the amendments that the Court was considering. There simply was no record to show the Court of how contribution limits alone would really work to address the problem of corruption and the appearance of corruption and encouraging public confidence in government. I thought, I thought what that case said and what many of our other cases say with regard to expenditures in particular is that you're not talking about money here. You're talking about speech. So long as all that money is going to campaigning, you're talking about speech. And when you say you don't need any more speech than this, that's a very odd thing for, for a, a, a United States uh, government to say, enough speech. You don't need any more than this. And that's the reason expenditure limits, as opposed to contribution limits, were regarded quite differently in Buckley. And I think 
should still be regarded differently today. You're constraining speech. It's not money you're constraining. Contribution limits you're constraining money. But when you say you can't expend more than this on your campaign, you're saying, no, no, this is enough speech. We're going to — we, the State, are going to tell you how much you should campaign. That's very unusual in, in, in American democracy. Your Honor, I think that's certainly why Buckley applied exacting scrutiny. But I think what Vermont understood is that political spending has inescapably a dual character. Yes, campaign spending enables many forms of speech, but it also has another side. Because higher and higher levels of campaign spending result in candidates who are beholden to the constituencies that can provide the greatest amounts of funds for their campaigns. And what you end up with, the consequence is legislators who say, you know, I've lost the drug money and I can't afford to lose the food manufacturer money. Limit the contributions. That solves that problem. Limit the contributions. But you want to limit expenditures. Even if it's the person's own money, no possibility of corruption. You're saying, no, this is enough speech. We don't want to hear any more from you. We, the state, will tell you how much campaigning is enough. That's extraordinary. Because the, the interests that Vermont is seeking to serve are uh, fundamental to the core functions of government, preserving the quality of representative government, preserving the integrity of government, assuring uh, the public that its office holders can act in the best interest of the public and make decisions on the merits, not simply based on their need for campaign cash. And this question of accountability that's so important is tied to the ability to say, I've, I've met my spending limit. I've raised all that I need to, to raise. If somebody comes to me with contributions uh, from a source that I don't uh, feel comfortable taking, I can turn that down without suffering uh, a tremendous competitive disadvantage. I think one of the other key features of the expenditure limits that Vermont seeks to impose here is that they will uh, do so much to encourage competitive campaigns. We had a record in Vermont that showed that for the previous nine election cycles before the Act was enacted, only one incumbent had been defeated for a statewide office. In the meantime, in the city of Albuquerque, where they had spending limits for 25 years, every challenger who came out to challenge an incumbent mayor was successful. Uh, no one can say on that uh, record that uh, spending limits would do anything but to enhance competition. Um, in the um, uh, one of the other interests that I would like to turn to before we close is Vermont's interest in protecting the time of office holders uh, uh, from uh, the burdens and distractions of fundraising. We had a record in which seasoned politicians in Vermont were saying that candidates for office, even in Vermont, were spending as much time begging for funds as they do campaigning. Uh, we had a record in which a senator reported uh, leaving the floor of a Senate during a floor debate to take a call from a how donor. Do you, how do you police that, though? Because an incumbent can, has so many opportunities to go before the public that wouldn't necessarily be categorized as campaigning, but as part of his or her official duties, while everything a challenger does is going to be credited against his account. Well, Your you Honor, may answer the question. Yes, Your Honor. Um, we believe that under almost any system, incumbents are going to still have advantages, and no campaign finance system can fully address that. But we believe that if the challenger now has the ability to outspend the incumbent and the incumbent doesn't have that additional advantage, of being able to outspend the challenger, as is most often the case, then competition can only be enhanced. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Bopp, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you. The one example that they keep going back to regarding the President of the Senate tells the breadth of this challenge. As long as Vermont allows periodic elections, incumbents are going to consider uh, the effect that their votes have on future elections. Uh, and, and, and while it makes it more scandalous to say we will lose the uh, food manufacturer's money, what they are concerned about is losing the food manufacturer's support. So as, if this is the definition of corruption, it is sufficient now to, for the state of Vermont to abolish uh, elections generally. Now, secondly, as to the effect on challengers, the record demonstrates that challengers, and there's expert testimony to the fact that challengers are more more frequently challenged in primaries than are incumbents, and the Randall brief on pages 16 and 17 point out the testimony of people who have been subject to a primary and demonstrates that they are not able to mount an effective campaign in the general. 
Uh, furthermore, the expenditure limits have the perverse result of depriving challengers of more money uh, than uh, incumbents, uh, probably making them attractive to incumbents. Uh, in the Senate, for instance, uh, incumbents would be deprived of 20 percent of their total resources, while challengers would be deprived of 36 percent of their total resources. I don't understand how that comes. How does that come about? It, it comes about because challengers frequently in Vermont actually spend more than do incumbents. Uh, I know that the, the general perception is the opposite, but the general perception is not true in Vermont. And, uh, and that points to the, uh, the, the fact that the way this law is constructed suggest, strongly suggests uh, that is, it is seeking to favor incumbents. Uh, furthermore, uh, we had expert witness testimony on the effect of contribution limits uh, on competitive races. Uh, the, uh, we had uh, Mr. McNeil testified in examining the competitive races in the 1998 uh, election uh, that uh, the vast majority in both the House and the Senate would not be able to mount an effective campaign uh, with the available resources that would have been available after imposing the contribution limits. And, of course, these were uh, in the amounts of 28 percent in the Senate, 22 percent in the House, which is way beyond the 5.1 percent that this Court in Buckley thought that uh, could be made up by the imposition of a $1,000 limit. I mean, th this, uh, uh, this law is so constructed that it would make it uh, — Virtually impossible for, for instance, uh, county-wide candidates in Chittenden County, a county of 150,000, the largest county in Vermont, they would be limited to $4,000 for the primary and the general election. That's three cents for each person uh, in Chittenden County. And, of course, this is an important county. Senator Leahy uh, came from that county as state's attorney and became the United States senator. And finally, with respect to the rebuttable uh, uh, presumption, uh, actually the, uh, the statute answers the question of uh, whether or not this uh, presumption disappears. If you look at 2809 subsection E, the last sentence says, the findings and determination of the court, and this is in this court proceeding by your opponent that is trying to claim that this spending over here is actually yours, uh, that the findings and determination of the court shall be prima facie evidence in any proceeding brought for violation of the chapter. So it doesn't go away. The rebuttal presumption never goes away. And, in fact, each uh, person, each candidate, and each independent spender can look at the rebuttable presumption requirement and say, I have to file a report, and that governs my report. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.